Good evening. It's 11 o'clock, and this is Quietly Yours. some little story for you tonight. I call it The Mannequin. She's staring again. She always stares. One of those deep, penetrating stares that seems fixed on you no matter where you are in the room. I try to ignore it, focus on my work, but even when I'm not looking, I can feel it. I can feel her stare like this intense heat burning through the back of my head. Our shop isn't much, never was, but it was never meant to be, not really. I met my wife about 10 years ago now. We didn't hit it off right away. It wasn't one of those great romantic stories that people tell. No, our story was pretty boring and pretty straightforward. We met through mutual friends and we saw each other occasionally, chatted when we did, and slowly got to know each other. And soon that blossomed into a relationship a year later, we were engaged, and just six months after that, we were married. A bit quick, maybe, but why wait around? That was always Angela's motto in life. We'd been married maybe five or six months when my father passed away. He didn't have much to leave me in his will. No cash. In fact, there was more debt than anything else. But the one silver lining was the old shop. He'd opened it years ago, in the 1970s, I think. He sold tools, paints, household stuff. It's not as though he found a huge success with it, but it was enough to keep him afloat and put food on the table. But in his later years, Dad wasn't exactly in good health. He didn't feel up to running the shop anymore, and so one day, out of the blue it seemed, he decided to shut up shop once and for all. We tried to persuade him that closing wasn't the only option. He could take on an employee, someone to run the shop in his place, but Dad said it was no use. He could barely afford to pay an employee, and if he did, there wouldn't be anything left over for him in the end anyway. So what's the point? Well, he was probably right about that. I think the shop was doomed to fail eventually anyway. Dad did the smart thing and put it out of his misery. I thought he would sell up. We all did. 
but instead he retreated to his flat above the shop and became a hermit. I think that just sped up his decline. I told him over and over again that he needs to get out of the house, speak to people, get some human contact, but it was no good. He'd chosen to sit in his flat and rot, and he was happy with his choice. All the while, the shop downstairs sits there, unused, boarded up, a waste of money when he could sell up and find a better place to live. And then when he passed away, the shop and the flat, his only real assets, they passed on to me. And an idea occurred to me. Angela had always been a bit of a seamstress. It's nothing she's ever taken seriously, nothing she's pursued as a career, but she loved making her own clothes, for herself and for others. She came alive at the holidays when she had stockings to fill and wool to use. It was the perfect plan. I had the shop now, and Angela had the skills. All we needed was a little helping hand from the bank, a loan to pay off the debts and clean up the shop a little, buy a few mannequins, get a sign. It was a great plan. What could go wrong? I've moved her to the window now. I couldn't bear her stare any longer. So I moved her to the window display, where she now models one of our most expensive dresses. I thought that would work, but she still stares. I can see her reflected face in the glass, her eyes fixed on me. They're not like living eyes. They're still, lifeless. But they stare at me with such intensity. Is it in my head? Am I going crazy? We didn't really make much money for the first couple of years. After overheads, repayments, bills, and putting food on the table, there really wasn't much left. But slowly, that changed. It was a good business model. People were willing to pay higher prices for clothes that they knew were handmade and, often, unique. And after a few years, we finally paid off the loans, and we had a decent amount of expendable income for the first time. That should have been great, but... That was really where the problem started. Angela would come home in new clothes, expensive perfumes. It seemed like every month she had a new bag, and I had a hunch that they weren't coming cheap. This went on for months, and I told myself that it was no big deal, but it only seemed to get worse, and finally I had to bring it up with her. She shouted right in my face, she said that she had every right to enjoy the money, to enjoy her success. That she'd worked for it, and it was hers to spend however she pleased. It was like she'd turned into a different person, someone I couldn't even recognize. And over the next couple of years, it only got worse. As our profits increased, so did her spending. She started going out, one night a week at first, then two, then more. 
She would get blind drunk and stumble home at four in the morning and the next day, watching her hands shake as she would sew, I would tell her that she's too old to be behaving like this. She needs to take her job more seriously and she's putting the business at risk. And that's exactly what she was doing. She was getting sloppy. Many of the outfits she were producing were just not suitable for sale by this point. I told her she needed to pull herself together and find a way to start making good clothes again. Which is exactly what she did. In a way. I found her downing rum, straight from the bottle, at 10 o'clock in the morning, while running cloth through a sewing machine. An accident waiting to happen. That sight made me so mad. All of the anger that I'd been suppressing this whole time, it just, it came bubbling up to the surface. I leapt forward and I grabbed her by the shoulders and I started shaking her, shouting at her, words I can't even remember, and she was shouting back. And then she spat in my face and I slapped her hard across the cheek and marched out of the room. put a sheet over her now, a thick black blanket through which even her gaze can't pierce. For the first time in a long time, I feel at ease. I feel like I can relax. I feel like I can finally get some peace. But it's not going to work. People have started asking me about it. Of course they have. Why would I have a mannequin in my shop just to throw a sheet over it so no one can see it? It's a crazy thing to do. Is that what they think? Do they think I'm crazy? I can't have that. I can't have them thinking I'm crazy. Not after what I've done. The last thing I want is to be making anybody suspicious. I don't want to bring attention to myself. Maybe I should get rid of her. No, no, I can't do that. I would only have to buy a new mannequin and replace her. They're far too expensive. No, she has to stay. And I need to get a grip. I need to focus on reality. She's not staring at me. She can't stare at me. She's not alive. No. No, it's all in my head. It's all in my head. I hadn't decided that I was going to kill her. We have an old wood-burning fireplace, you see, in the shop. It's brilliant in the winter, keeps the place warm and adds a bit of atmosphere for the customers, and she disgusted me. That's the only word for it, really. I didn't recognize her or who'd she become, and there was just this primal rage that stirred inside me. I would watch her make the clothes, and I hated her. I would lie awake at night, unable to sleep, 
listening to the sickening sound of her breathing in and out, in and out, and I just wanted it to end, to stop. And then one day we were fighting. I don't even know what about. She was screaming and so was I in a blind rage and I just, I picked up a log from beside the fire and I swung it into her face with all the power I could. It was a horrible thud and a crack and an almost crinkling sound as she crumpled to the floor, motionless. I wasn't sure if she was dead or just unconscious. I couldn't see whether or not she was breathing. I gave her a hard kick, and she didn't move. That was it. I'd done it. She was dead. I knew I had to do something to ensure the crime was never discovered, and that if it was, it would never be traced back to me. I came up with a brilliant plan. Every week or two, I take a big bag of unused or unsold clothes to be donated to charity. I take them by car, carried in large black bags. It couldn't be more perfect. I would need to make the job more manageable though, so I set to work. I used the bathtub to minimize mess, and I set to work with the saw, reducing her bit by bit, small enough to stuff in a bag and carry out of the shop, piece by piece, without raising any eyebrows. But I need to make sure that if they ever do find the pieces, they're not able to identify them as Angela. I started with her teeth, they had to go. Pliers did the job, and once they were all out, I slipped them inside the urn on the fireplace where my father had settled. No one would ever think to look there. Her fingertips, they were fine. Angela has never been in trouble with the police, so there was no risk of her fingertips identifying her. She had a tattoo, one that she got on one of her drunken benders. One she didn't even remember getting, not until the next day when she felt the pain. The tattoo had to go, but it was only small. I removed it with a knife and burned it. It smelled terrible. That just left her face. I needed to make sure it wasn't recognizable, even to those who knew Angela best. There was no elegant solution to that one. It all came down to brute force. I used a hammer, and it took a lot longer than expected, but it worked. Her own mother wouldn't know her now. I've gone crazy. I must have. I had to remove the sheet from the mannequin, 
I knew that much. It would invite too many questions otherwise. But when I came to remove it, I pulled the blanket off the vile thing and... It had moved. I know, I know what position I put that mannequin in. It's not as though I don't put thought into that. I removed the mannequin from the window display, moved her to a distant corner of the room, and positioned her with a hand on her hip and the other hand resting by her leg. I know that's the position I put her in. I remember it clearly. But when I removed the sheets, she'd moved. Now she stood in the same place and with the same hand on her hip, but the other arm, the one that was hanging by her side, it's moved. Now her arm is bent, her hand on her face, a single finger extended, pressing against her lips. Shh. She knows. She knows. There was no one here when I murdered Angela. No witnesses. That's why I was able to get away with it. No one saw. Except she did. She saw. And the mannequin. It all happened in this room. Right before her eyes. And she knows. And now she's teasing me. It's driving me crazy. She has to go. She has to go. I have to do something. I have to get rid of her. I grab the doll by its arm and I drag it out of its corner. I drag it through the shop and I pull it into the back room. I open the door. I kick it out into the yard and I pick up the axe. I was like a madman. I hacked and hacked and hacked. I broke her to pieces. I wrapped her in a blanket. I drove her to the woods and I retraced my steps. I dug a hole right by the one where I laid Angela to rest and I buried the mannequin deep in the ground. It was done. She was gone. She wouldn't stare at me anymore. That was a couple of weeks ago now. And even though she's gone, the whole thing still plays on my mind. When there's a knock at the door, my mind jumps to the mannequin. Back together in one piece, stood on my doorstep, knocking. What a crazy thought. I really need to put this behind me. I head for the door and open it to reveal two police officers. At first I panic, but there's no need, I remind myself. I have taken care of every detail. There's no way to trace any of this back to me. The officers say they would like to speak with me, so I invite them in and offer them a drink. They decline. The three of us take a seat and they begin to explain that they've recently found a body buried in the woodland. Oh no, they found Angela. Oh, they know she's dead. Relax. You have to relax. They can't possibly know that. I removed her teeth. I made sure her face was beyond unrecognizable. They could never tell that it was Angela. They could never trace this crime to me. But then why are they here? 
Probably just talking to all of the locals. Yeah. Yeah, that must be it. But then one of the officers explains to me that the belief that the body is that of my wife. What? How? That can't be. The other officer reads me my rights. I'm under arrest. I'm under arrest for murder. This can't be happening. It can't be. I covered every last detail. I made sure there was no way. No way to identify the body. No way to connect the dots. And then one of the officers reaches into a bag by his feet. And he pulls out a long, white object. He passes it across to me and I recognize it instantly. A long, slender, plastic arm. Damaged, cracked, but in one piece. And printed across the inside of the arm is the name of the shop and its address. Printed right where I asked for all those years ago. Mannequins aren't cheap. It can cost thousands to replace one. It's just not worth the risk. It's a good precaution to have your business details engraved. And it worked. She led them right back to where she belongs. The only witness to my crime. And she led them right to me. And the moral of the story is, don't put all your eggs in one basket, if you know what I mean. A leg here, an arm there, have some variety. So that's all for tonight. If you want to make sure you don't miss any future episodes, you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Stitcher, Spotify, pretty much any podcasting platform. If we're not on your favourite podcast app, let us know and we'll see what we can do. You can get in touch via Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or Tumblr. Our username everywhere is quietlypodcast. You can also email us, it's quietlyyours at daffodillies.co.uk, and as always, you can find our website at daffodillies.co.uk slash quietlyyours. Not sure how that's spelled? Yeah, me neither. Until next time, I am quietly yours, and you are quietly mine.